Mark chapter 12. Let me just say something about food. My, my theory, and medical science hasn't caught up to this yet, but is, is a happy heart is a healthy heart. So if I eat things that make me happy, I will be healthy. So I'm waiting for research to back that up, but I'm pretty sure it's coming. So anyway, let me just say, speaking of our partnership together, thank you for your support of Friend Don Wendelmeyer, uh, our missions interns up in Fredericksburg, and I love Fred and Dawn. They're going to Thailand next, looks like next spring, and your support has just been invaluable. So thank you for your support of them, your generosity. I think they're going to be here next week. Is next week correct? So they're coming next week to kind of give some updates on what they're doing, but, but thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart as us as a church. We're, we're limited in what we can do in support of them. So thank you for your support and your generosity and your prayers and your care. They they love this church, and, and so thank you for loving them so well as they, as they transition to Southeast Asia soon enough. Um, in your Bibles, open to Mark chapter 12 if you haven't already. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27. But I was a, uh, in college, I was a philosophy major, and so we'd get in, in philosophy class just all these debates. Every, every class almost was debating certain topics and just, you know, every topic that's out there, you know, and just a bunch of 19-year-old kids who, who are philosophy majors, so we think we're really smart and we think we know everything. And so there's all this sort of debate going around, people playing devil's advocate and not necessarily intelligent debate, but we didn't really let facts get in the way of, of, of what we believed and all this sort of thing. And so we, we just love debating as a class. And usually, eventually what would happen is, you know, the debate would sort of take, you know, people would start to switch and it would kind of be on one side would start to win the room. And there'd be one sort of the loudest voice in the room or one guy would sort of start to get everything to come his way and would sort of start to own the room a little bit. And then we had this one professor that whenever the debate sort of seemed to land and everybody sort of reached this consensus, would just throw a monkey wrench in the whole thing. And he'd pull out some argument that, that I mean, he's a college professor, we're 19, that we'd never heard of, and it would stump the whole room again, and then we'd start all over again. And so this would just, kind of every class, he just had this one thing on either side that would just sort of stump everyone, and no one could get around it, and no one could answer his question. And so he sort of made this career of sort of having us all like, oh, we don't know what to think, and, and all this sort of thing. We, he, he, he has all the answers, we don't have all the answers, and because we weren't as smart as him, we just sort of, every argument always ended up the same. We'd get to this consensus, and then we, he'd give us the unanswerable riddle, if you will. Well, in this morning's passage, the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, have an argument that sort of won the day in every crowd they've been part of. Even believers of the resurrection can't get around their argument. So they'll, they'll argue against religious folks who who, who, who just can't get around sort of their logic of this argument. And so the Sadducees have used this time and time again, and now they're going to use this argument against Christ. And they have used it many times. They have stumped many people with this quandary. And so, so far, this is the, this is the trump card of the Sadducees, if you will. And up to this point in the book of Mark, you guys are probably aware, the last couple chapters, sort of in battle, it tends to be that assaults sort of come in waves, right? So you sort of try to attack your opponent before, try to hit your opponent before he has a chance to sort of regain his feet and steady himself. And Mark, so the last couple of chapters, the, the world is at war with Christ. Sort of there's this battle going on against Christ. They're looking to discredit him then, to undermine him and to assault him. And eventually we're going to see very, very soon actually in the book that they're going to kill him. And so the last few chapters, it has been this parade of the chief priests and the teachers of Israel, the elders, the Pharisees, the Heridians, and now it's the Sadducees' turns. And so they pull out the big guns, the, the argument that will discredit Jesus. But what we find is in their attempt to tear Jesus away at the very foundation, instead what we find is he destroys theirs 
And not only does he break down their foundation, but he builds up his followers and gives his followers even more reason for faith in him. So the main point we're going to be looking at this morning is our hope is the God of the living. Our hope is the God of the living. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The main thing we're going to be looking at this morning is our hope is the God of the living. Before we go any further, let's pray. Father, as we just were wonderfully reminded of this morning as we sang of that the end of all things is our confidence, our steady hope is that your love for us goes on and on and on. Lord, I, I pray that what this morning would help accomplish in the lives of, of your people, of your saints is just a steady and transformative confidence in the eternal love of God. Lord, as we think about the resurrection, as we think about the life that is to come, Lord, would this not just be theological truth that we ascribe to, but Lord, would it be transformative in nature? And Lord, would we put our current lives, our current trials, our current struggles, our current questions, Lord, would they be put in light of the the hope that we have And Lord, the reality of your eternal and unfailing love for your people. So Lord, would you work in our hearts just a a steady, transformative confidence, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So before diving into the text a little bit more this morning, helpful probably to know a little bit of background about what's going on here. So chances are the Sadducees are a party you've heard of, probably a party you might know a little bit about, but it's actually to know a couple of things about them to sort of put their question in proper context. So in verse 18, it says the Sadducees came to him and the Sadducees, who, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. So we see that and in Acts 23, verse 8, it says they do not believe in the resurrection. So sort of affirming that. But then it says they also do not believe in angels or, or they don't believe in sort of spirits. They don't believe basically in the supernatural. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees are, are, are often lumped together, but they're two distinct Parties, the, the Sadducees believe in God, but, but they don't believe in the, in the supernatural. They don't believe in miracles. They are from families of the highest social status. They are high in society in this day. They are wealthy. They are worldly. And to be frank, they are not well loved. They are this group of people that lorded their position, lorded their status over people. And 
as far as their belief in Scripture and their belief in sort of revealed Word of God, they believe in the first five books of the Old Testament. So they believe in what Moses wrote, or at least most of it. They actually exclude a few sections because they don't like that. But they believe in the first five books of the Old Testament. But that's, that's really all they believe. So they don't have much space for the supernatural. They don't have much space for angels or spirits. They don't believe in the resurrection, as it says, which means they don't believe in life after death or eternal punishment or eternal reward. And while they're not sort of the majority opinion, they carry a lot of clout because they are highly educated, because they have high status. They have a, a real influence on, on, sort of on the crowds around them. They have a real influence on, on culture around them. So start with, that we, we see that they, ha- they have a theological problem with Jesus. They don't like Jesus for his theology and in, in numerous things that he's teaching and doing, miracles that he's performing. But they also have a, a personal problem with Jesus because Jesus really does sort of attack their place in the social order and the social structure because a chapter ago, in chapter 11, you, when you guys, I don't know when you guys covered this, but, but a chapter, chapter 11, he, he, Jesus cleansed the temple. He kicks out the money changers and, and he sort of comes down on, on the folks really running this whole industry. Well, they don't like him because this is what the Sadducees do. This is their domain. This is who they are. This is the area of, the, of, of temple life that they run. So they have a theological bone to pick with Jesus and they have, they have a personal one as well because he's really disrupting their order. And so at Jesus, they just come out swinging. And so they use this argument that has actually stumped many before as, as sort of history's gone on. This is one that sort of no one's really been able to refute and to answer them back. But I would submit they've never really run into a man like Jesus before. So Four points we're going to be looking at specifically this morning. So our main point again is our hope is the God of the living. But four points and point number one is resurrection's false narrative. So that the Sadducees who reject the resurrection and want to prove their case. So they, they take a case to the extreme. They sort of they, they, they take this hypothetical scenario. They go to the extreme with it to show that boy, in this hypothetical scenario, it cannot be true. So even though you might say, well, seven, you know, seven husbands and all this, I mean, that, that wouldn't happen. But they're, they're really doing this to show this logical flaw inside the argument. So in verses 18 through 23, they pose this question to Jesus. There's seven brothers. One marries. There, there, there's no children. And, 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 and he dies and the brother marries the widow. And on and on it goes until all seven brothers marry her. And then all seven brothers pass away. They don't really bring up in the scenario. I mean, what point is brother five or six just thinking this is a bad idea to kind of keep going on with, with this thing? But they, they all die. Then eventually she dies. And then he, they ask the question, well, who, who's going to be married to her in the resurrection? She can't be married to seven men. They all rightfully have this claim of her as, as, that, she's, that, that she's their wife. So, so, so who, who will be married to her in the resurrection? And to their credit, and sort of what makes his argument so compelling, is this, this is not completely out of left field in the Old Testament. When they say Moses taught, in, in, the, in, the, book of, in the books of Moses, there, there was this instructions for a brother to marry his, for a brother to marry his brother's widow if, if there's no children. So if, if, you know, a man dies and they don't have any children, that the brother comes in and, and marries the widow, and that's to keep the family name going, that's to keep the family line intact, that's because whatever wealth the family would have had would have been would have been passed on to him, so they want to keep the wealth intact so it goes to the next brother and so on and so on. So they, so they raise this. So, so suppose this happens seven times. What then, Jesus? 
They were showing sort of that the resurrection cannot be true because this woman, it just can't be married seven times. How can the afterlife function like this? Now, you might think, well, I mean, that's absurd, seven husbands. But, but, I mean, the argument would hold, well, what if it's two husbands? I mean, how many do we need to sort of say that the the resurrection can't be true? This is just something that that can't happen. Now, what what their assumption is, is that the afterlife is just a longer version of this life. So one of the one of the falsehoods that they have is that the that the afterlife is is it's just this life. It's only it's just a little maybe a little bit better, but it's just this life and it just keeps going and going and going. Now they don't actually believe in the afterlife, so they're not teaching this, but they're they're picking up on what's the popular belief in the day. This is what the the average man on the street would believe in the day that 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 life after death is just basically you're going to get up from the grave and then event you're just going to live for a long, long time. Now, we know that they have a very deficient view of the afterlife. I would say it's caused by their very deficient view of God. They deny the resurrection because they really deny so much of what is true about God. They have to deny to deny the resurrection. You have to deny much about the about the character of God and the nature of God and the power of God and the plans of God and the purposes of God and the promises of God. So really, you have to deny basically the nature of God himself to believe in an ordinary afterlife. And so they believe in a very ordinary God, and so they believe in a very ordinary afterlife. Actually, they don't even believe in it, but the, the people of this time believe in this very ordinary afterlife. So they just view the afterlife as an extension of life here and now. And so it's easy for us to say, well, what a deficient view. We, we know that's not the true view of the afterlife. But I would say it's not just the Sadducees who have a deficient view of the afterlife. It's not just the Sadducees who who believe false things of the life that is to come. I wonder how many people outside these doors picture the afterlife as boring. How many people outside these doors picture the things here and now as good as things will get? How many people picture the afterlife as as happier than 21st century America with all of our comfort and all of our entertainment, how many people outside these doors do you suppose invest exclusively to the here and now or at best maybe into retirement? Now, whatever they, say, whatever they may say they believe, it's really the same belief of the Sadducees that, well, the here and now is what matters most. That the here and now is what's ultimate. Let me say that I'm concerned about them. I'm concerned about those outside this, these doors that would believe that. But here's what I'm more concerned about. Is I have a tendency to believe it too. See, I have a tendency to invest primarily in here and now and not in eternity. I have a tendency... To invest, a more, to invest more emotional energy into Thursday's kickoff, and I've invested a lot, than anticipating what is to come. See, I, I have a tendency to be, listen, I'm really glad I'm not going to hell, but to not really yearn for heaven and allow that coming reality to shape me. So, so the Sadducees have it wrong. I mean, they've got it wrong on, on a number of levels. 
But you see, I don't want to just say, well, they're wrong. I want to see my tendency as well. You see, they deny eternity with their theology. But you see, I proclaim eternity with my theology, but I want to live my life in light of it as well. You see, I don't want to just have it be truth that I believe. It needs to have a transformative effect on me for me to really say, I believe in the resurrection. So given that their culture, given that our culture has many narratives about how the here and now, how this moment is what's ultimate, I'm aware that my heart can, can adapt that false narrative as well, that they can adopt it as well. So to combat their false narrative, I want to look at, at what's true. And I don't want to just look at it in terms of, oh, this is theological truth Jesus is giving us. No, I think Jesus is actually giving us transformative hope, not just truth. So, so point number one is resurrection's false narrative. Point number two is resurrection's real proof. Resurrection's real proof. Yeah, I'm aware sometimes when we, when we have a view of something, and, and it turns out we're wrong, it, it, can, it can be a bit jolting at times. So, I'm, I, so this, this might surprise you, um, but I'm actually going bald. And uh, this is not real, like, I mean, I'd rather have a full head of luscious hair, but, but I don't, and, and I'm okay with this. This has been my reality for a long time that, I, that I'm going bald. But until recent, like, but sort of I've described, if you were to ask me about my hair, I would have said, well, I'm balding, but, but I'm not bald. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm sort of hanging on to something and maybe it's thinning, but I mean, I've still got a lot of growth going on up top. And so, so I'm okay. But, but recently, this, 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 so this summer, about, about a month and a half ago, I was outside in the yard doing some work and it's getting all sweaty and all this kind of stuff. And there's this 10 year old neighbor girl who we, our kids play with, you know, all the time. And she's, she's a real sweet girl. And so she comes up to me and she says, Mr. Adam, now when you go in to take a shower, do, do you have to use shampoo and and I thought, okay. I misread her question, so I said, well, yeah. Even though, even though I'm an adult, I, I still need to use shampoo. Like, you know, and you know, not just kids. Adults need to use shampoo. And she said, oh, I know, I know, I know. But do you need to use shampoo? And I'm like, okay, I see what. Yes, I, I, I still need to use shampoo. And she goes, well, but I mean, just like the tiniest, tiny drop of shampoo, right? I'm like, yes, I, I only need to use a little bit of shampoo. It saves money in the budget. Let's just, let's just move on. And so I sort of had this like humbling response of, okay, I'm, maybe I'm just bald now and I'm not balding. I've just sort of crossed whatever line there is that I was holding on to. Well, the, 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 the Sadducees have been holding on to, we only take these five books of the Bible and th- that these five books show there is no resurrec- re- resurrection and they're about to get jolted by what Jesus Christ is going to say. He's about to rock their worlds because they, they want to show that scripture does not allow for a resurrection. They believe that's what it's taught. They believe Jesus is coming on the scene, claiming to be God, and teaching something new. Well, Christ is actually going to say, no, 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 this is, this is who God has been from, from day one. This is, this is what, what's been going on from the very beginning. So they appeal in verse 19, and they say, well, now, teacher Moses taught, Meaning, now Moses is the one who gave us this marriage rule we're appealing to. And and this whole marriage paradigm that you've got here, it it discredits the resurrection. Because how could these seven marriage, how could this seven marriage thing be? And so clearly their logic goes that because Moses sort of gave this rule of marriage and passing down from brother to brother, that that there can't be a resurrection. Moses taught against the resurrection. So, So Jesus stopped teaching something new. Jesus, in verse 24, simply answers, you don't understand. Basically, you, you have no idea what you're talking about. 
You have no idea what you're talking about on two levels. One, you have no idea about the power of God, and we're going to talk about that in our next point, but also because you know not the Scriptures. So in verse 26, sort of Jesus goes with them. All right, you want to appeal to Moses? All right, let's go back to Moses. Remember what God said to Moses when he introduced himself to him? When he, when he was at the burning bush, the passage we read this morning, what did, he tell, what did he say to Moses? He says, I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. He's refer- and Jesus makes explicitly clear. He, I'm, remember at the burning bush, remember that in Exodus 3. Remember how he introduced himself. Well, here's the deal. He's not the God of dead people. He is the God of living people. So if he's going to introduce himself as the God of them, then they must be alive. Now, if they are alive, given that they've died on earth, well, then the resurrection must be real. So, you, Sadducees, you want to, we'll, we'll, we'll accept your, your terms are terrible. We're only going to look at five books, but we'll accept them. But let's go by your rules for a second. We'll go by the one author you allow in part. And even in him, you're going to see the resurrection is real. Because God is the God of the living. He is the God of Abraham. He is the God of Isaac. He is the God of Jacob. That's what he said to Moses right here in that book. Now, you might wonder, now, how can that be? Well, it's because the covenant he made with them is so profound. It demands an everlasting relationship with them. His covenant is so deep. It requires more than a few years on earth. That's why years, really generations after their earthly deaths, God would say to Moses, I'm their God. It's not, I was their God. It's, I am their God. I am their God because right now they are alive. As if we needed further confirmation than Jesus himself, Hebrews 11 also says Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as well as many other saints, but it lists those three. It says they, they were looking forward to the life and the city that is to come because they believed in the resurrection because it's always been the plan and the purposes of God to have an eternal relationship with his people. So let's be clear that the resurrection is real. Scripture confirms it time and time again. In the New Testament, we see just a, I mean, it's all over the place, but just a couple that will point out. John 10, Jesus declares, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Romans 8 declares that not even death can separate us from the love of God. Now, it's only possible if death is actually not the end of the love of God. Ephesians 1 declares that, all in Christ have an inheritance waiting for them. 1 Corinthians 15 says, If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ stayed in the grave. But he did indeed rise, and in him all shall be made alive. The resurrection is real. It is the testimony of Scripture from beginning to end. It is Jesus' testimony. And here's what you need to understand. If you are in Christ, it will be yours. It's real. You can have every confidence in it. The resurrection is not I know we've not, it's not a fairy tale, but here, here's what else. It's not, it's not, it's not a nice thought. It, it's, not, it's not even a hope we have. It's real. It's guaranteed. You, you can bank your life now. You can bank your eternity in it. You can have every confidence in it. It is sure. It is promised from God. So our hope is the God of the living. Third point I want to look at is resurrection's real power. So they disbelieve the resurrection because they really misunderstand and, and disbelieve Scripture. But we see Scripture is clear on, 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 on the resurrection. But it says the other, the other cause of their unbelief, verse 24 says, is you do not know the power of God. 
So what they have this view of God is, is that God is God's real, but he's sort of distant. He's, he's uninvolved with humanity. Now, an uninvolved God in humanity really, I would say, has very little effect and hold on the human heart. You know, about a year ago, um, my, my son was three. And so he three year old son at a year ago, three year old son, six year old daughter. And a year ago, two things were going on. So one, one thing that was happening was we were, we were potty training my son. And this will all tie together. So I'm going to tell you some random things, but hopefully they'll, hopefully they'll all tie together. The other thing that was going on is we just passed a rule in our house that our son was now allowed to play in our daughter's room. And our daughter did not really care for this ruling from on high. She would have let, she, the rule was always they could play in his room, but not in her room because he would eat the toys and do things like that and kind of ruin most of her things. So there was a lot of resistance to this rule, but, but we've passed this rule. So, so a year ago, that we, this is all going on, and we're potty training my son. And so when we're potty training him, we had this, we had this chart on the wall. And, and we, were, we were kind of, you know, every time, so he'd go to bed with a pull-up on, and every time he would, he would wake up with a dry pull-up, he got to put a sticker on his chart. So we had a little, we had a little racetrack, and he'd get to get a little car sticker. And so we were racing to dry underwear. And so this was, this was a big event in our home. If you've ever been potty training, you understand that this is, this is all of life for a little bit. And so, so we're racing to dry underwear. And at the end, when he, when he reached the finish line on the chart, the big prize is we were going to go to the Dollar Tree. And he could pick out anything he wanted. So this is, he's never gotten picked out his own toy before. Like he has no idea that, you know, a dollar, I mean, we're not wealthy, but we can swing it. And so this to him is, is a major sort of thing going on here that he's going to go to the Dollar Tree, pick out any toy he wants and the whole thing. And so, so, so he's so excited. And so every, you know, every, every day and every nap, we get up and put the little sticker on. And so finally he accomplishes it. He crosses the finish line. And this is the biggest thing going on in the world. So every time we'd host a care group, he'd call everybody into his room and like point out the chart, you know, and it's the big deal that he's going to get to go so he's talking about you know go he doesn't know what a calendar is but he's making us put on the calendar when we're going to go to the store and all this kind of stuff so this is this is his world right now is how excited he is about getting this toy and picking it out and one day we're driving and we were going to go to the store the next day and so he, we were just talking about it and he goes you know dad and this he, our daughter eva's in the car and he goes you know, is it okay if, if if eva picks out my toy and so we're like well I don't think you understand. Like, you only get one toy. So we're trying to talk him out of this. So he wants his sister to pick out the toy. And so we're trying, you know, as good parents, we're trying to talk him out of being kind to her. And so we're like, well, no, I don't, there's only, there's only one toy. Like, you don't, she can't pick out one in you. And she, and he's like, no, 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 I want, I want her to pick it out. So he's insistent. I, I, I get what I'm saying. Like, I want her to pick it out. So we're really surprised because this has been a thrill for him for weeks to, to pick out this toy. And so, so, so she just goes, well, well why, Dre? Why, why do you want me to pick out your toy? And he goes, well, I love you, Eva. And the effect that that had, as soon as we get home, she pulls out her tiny toys. She calls them into his room. She goes, Drake, come in here. Pulls out the tiny toys. And they set up shop in the room, and they're just playing for, like, the next hour and a half with, like, her precious little, like, the tiny toys that the toys eat. And so this is, like, her preciousest toys. There's this calling into the room. And because what happened was he, he had this, like, his love for her just in that moment just had this transformative effect on, 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 her, on her young heart. And so I just thought, now... If that's the effect that my three-year-old son has on his off-feuding sister, what does the power of God, what's the transformative power of God look like to those he makes a covenant with? I mean, that's, that's the power he has. What's, what's the power of God look like that Jesus is referring to? Well, the power of God is this. It, 
raises the dead back to life. It gives eternal life. It has lasting and it has transformative power. Now, the Sadducees, even in the little bit they knew or believed, they, they should have believed it. Even with the little bit of scripture they accepted, they, they, they should have believed in the power of God. Because this is the God who they believe with, a, with the power of a word created all things. That day and night and earth and sea and star and star and star and star. Which just came to being with, with a single word. That they, they should have known the power of God. They should have known the power of God because this is the God who parted the Red Sea and saved some slavery. And who, who was very involved in the affairs of man when he sent plague after plague after plague to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. The Sadducees should have known the power of God and the, and the ability of God to save and to care and to love and to lead his people. They should have known that life after death was easy for God. Now they saw it and rejected it and it says they didn't know it. If you're a Christian, I know you've seen the power of God. The nature, if you've seen the power of God, you should know the power of God. The nature of God demands a resurrection because He is eternal. He is powerful. He is more powerful than death. How, how can God create something in His image which is not eternal? How can He make a covenant with man that is not eternal? How can a grave ever hold God down? It doesn't. How can it hold those who are in Him? It simply cannot. And given what we believe about this God, how can that resurrected life not be more glorious and better than here? Now in Hebrews, it talks of the impacts it made on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in this long line of saints, the life that is coming, that there is a city of God coming and God will be there and so will I and they fix their gaze on it and it transformed their view of everything. How, how, how will it also not for you and I? His power is to create a place that the fall no longer reaches, where every pain is healed, where every hope is realized, that all those weights that drag us down, are released for all time. And I would submit, it's not just that, it's God's power that allows this. God's power demands this. So if you believe in a powerful God, then you ought to believe in a powerful resurrection. And your belief in a powerful resurrection ought to have a transformative effect on your heart. So the fourth thing I want to look at is resurrection really happens. See, I'm, I'm aware I'm probably addressing a group that primarily does, before I said anything, probably would say, yep, Scripture says resurrection is true. Yep, I believe in the resurrection. But, but I want us this morning, I, I, I think the, one of the effects of this passage is meant to be that it's not just that we believe in the resurrection up here, but it's meant to have sort of a, a place in here. Because I'm aware that at times... I say this as one who believes in the resurrection, who hopes for it at times. It can feel so distant. And the here and now can feel, well, very here and now. I'm aware that I can live my life like like I believe it, but it doesn't really shape and define my reality. So if you can relate to that in any way, let me encourage you to allow the truth of the resurrection to not just be something you believe, but something that transforms you. So I've said the, the God of the living is our hope, and, and so here, here's what you need to know. Is that if you're alive, then 
you have a sure and you have a great hope. But I want to be clear about one other thing. God is powerful. He will accomplish this. He has promised to do this. He has promised to do this to the living, and he will do this. But, but I need to be clear and ask the question, or just say that he, he promises this to all those who are alive, that he's the God of the living. So who are those who are alive? And I want to be clear that not all are alive. Only some are alive. So, who are those who are living? Well, Ephesians 2 says, When you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, and this is the universality of this, like the rest of mankind. So mankind as a whole, dead, not alive. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. So those who are alive are those who are alive in Christ. It is those who are with Christ. And it is only those who are in Christ. So if you are in Christ, if you have turned from your sins, repented of your sins, and placed your faith in Him and His work, then know you are alive and you will be resurrected to new life. It is guaranteed. But know this, that if you are not in Christ... You are eternal too. And you will find yourself, if you do not turn from your sins and find yourself in Christ, you will not be one who is eternally in Him and newfound resurrected life, but you are one who will face His fierce opposition forever. So, who are those who have life? It's not the perfect not even the good. It's not those who can get a lot of the way to heaven but need a little boost along the way. It's nobody that can act or speak the part. Those who are alive are sinners who cling, who cling to Christ. So let me say, if you come to Him as a sinner, you will find Him full of forgiveness. But I'm aware that, that sin, because we're sinners and because we know we're sinners, we, we have this tendency to, because we sin, to, to run away from God. To, 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 try to, to, to try to get our way around and, and try, to, try to get some other way rather than running right to God. We, we, we try to run away from God. I was watching the movie Argo recently. Have you, any of you seen the movie Argo? It's a... It's cool. So, so the, the movie's about, and I, I'll try not to spoil it, but it's 1979 in Iran. There's some, so there's some American hostages in Iran. So the, they send this team of people to try to, some Americans, to try to get this team of hostages out of Iran and try to get them out without sort of creating a scene and starting a war, basically. So there's this scene where 
where, where the, these hostages, that they make their way to the airport. And so to get out of Iran, the, the, the point is that, that the goal is they, they're going to get on a commercial flight and try to get out. And so while they're there, they have these, they, they have these like costumes on and sort of false, you know, sort of they don't look like they would normally look. And they have false IDs. They have false passports. They have false backstories. Basically, they put on sort of a show to kind of to try to trick the Iranian officials and the security and all these people that they're, they're putting on all this, these layers of things to try to trick the Iranian officials and, into believing there's someone else that they really can be released from the country. And so there's this tension and, and it's, it's sort of the, the, the tension point of the movie is, are, are the Iranian officials going to believe it? Are the Iranian officials going to see them for who they are and, and arrest them, or are they, they going to release them? And as you look at the airport scene, there's, there's just, you could see it on, on the, the faces. It's really just well acted. You can just see it on the, the, their faces, how, how scared they are that they're going to get caught. How scared they are that the Iranian officials are going to see right through their facade and, and send them back. So, so there's just this tension the whole time because they know they're not who they claim to be. I'm aware that there are people in every church and every Sunday who are afraid to approach God because they're afraid that He is going to see right through the facade. That He is going to see you for who you really are. And so you... So you sort of stay back at a distance, afraid to ever approach, because you're afraid you're going to be found out for who you are. And let me say this, if that's you, let me give you both heartbreaking and comforting news. God knows who you are. You're not pulling one by him. You're not going to get to heaven because you were able to put on a mask and put on a facade and give a fake backstory and act sincere about sin and, and, and try, to, try to trick your way into the kingdom. God, God, God knows who you are. That's why he sent his son to die for who you are. So your hope is not putting up a mask. Your hope is not putting on enough good deeds. Your hope is that God sent His Son into the world to die for sinners and that if you would turn from your sin and place your faith in Him, you don't have to stand back. You don't have to find a workaround. You can draw near to Him. And if you have never done that, let me plead with you. Take off the mask. Stop hiding. Stop running. Turn to Jesus Christ and find life. For those that have, our hope is in the God of the living. Now, the Sadducees got a lot wrong. They got wrong whether the Bible taught this. They got, they, they got wrong that, listen, God can even do this. No, they got wrong how powerful God was. They got wrong the reality of the resurrection for those who hope in God. And they got wrong what the, what the resurrection looks like. See, their entire assumption of the marriage question is this, that the resurrection is life now. It's just... You know, it, it, it's life again, which is true, but it's basically just like now. It's only longer. That's just so false, and we've talked about that, but that's just a, such a false narrative of the resurrection. Verse 25, Jesus says, Now when they rise from the dead, they're, they're, you know, they're going to marry or given in marriage, marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now, his goal was to not to give every specific or a full teaching of sort of every human relationship or whatever relationship will be there in heaven or, or all the all the breakdowns of how are we like the angels and how are we not, but it's rather just to show them the overwhelming wrongness of their view. 
His point in saying that was to just show them, no, no, listen, what you view of the afterlife, which is just life here extended, could not be more wrong. No, no, the the afterlife, the resurrection life, it's not just life extended. It is life redefined. Just like these angels, who, these sinless creatures who enjoy the eternal presence of God unendingly, just like them. Hey, listen, when you get to the resurrection life, there will be no death. Human relationships will be completely redefined. You will be more lovely than ever before. And, and while you're thinking about, oh, well, who's going to marry this person or that person? No, listen, don't think of marriage there as sinful person to sinful person. And I'm not saying that to bash marriage. I, this year, this week we celebrated nine years. I love my wife. I love being married. But the marriage we're going to see there is, is, is just so perfect because it is the purified bride with the spotless, perfect groom in the only perfect marriage creation has ever seen. Your relationships will be more real. They will be perfect because they are no longer affected by the effects of the fall and the ravages of sin. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow. Jesus is saying, listen, what you envision of the resurrected life could not have been more wrong, Sadducees. Listen to how Peter described it. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you, you have been grieved by various trials, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you, do not, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What's Peter saying? Yeah, you have trials now. You're going to be tested with fire now. And it will result in praise and glory and honor at Jesus Christ. And though right now you have these very limited eyes that cannot see Him, very soon, very soon, there is a day coming when you will experience what only the power of God can create for all who are in Him, the one who crushed the power of the grave. Only God can give an inheritance that is imperishable and unfading and undefiled kept in heaven for you. And because he brought you from death to life once, you will experience the resurrection again. So listen, let me say to you, if you see this as a nice theological thought, and that's it, I'll submit, you don't see it. Because if you're in Christ, if you hope in God, this is your reality. So listen, I'm not trying to to downplay or, or belittle any trials that you guys are walking in. I know as a church, you're grieved by trials. And I know we're probably to pull each and every person away from the big corporate, but to individually just, just questions and just in your life right now, as you think about your marriage and just, boy, is this, is this thing ever going to change? And carry prayers for, for your children of just, why? Why won't they walk on this road? Why, 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 are they, why are they walking on this one? Why, why won't they walk on this one? And physically, just feeling for some of you, like my body's just, just failing. There, 
I know there are concerns on every heart of every person in this room. There are people that struggle not just with unknowns about the future in general, but, but like tomorrow. As they look at their day tomorrow, they're going to look at a day of trials. I don't mean to make those seem smaller than they ought. Listen, trials are real. Peter says, you will have trials of various kinds. But something grand is coming. And that absolutely should transform how you view these things. There is a city coming, and because of the mercy of God, I am a citizen there. If you are in Christ, you are a citizen there forever. Because of Christ, you are alive forever. And so let that give transformation to these passing moments. It's not a denial of them, but let them be transformed by what is bigger and what is permanent and what is more real and lasting because we really do have hope in the God of the living. And brothers and sisters, what a hope he gives. Let's pray. Father, I pray for two groups in particular this morning. One, Lord, anybody here that has never turned from their sins and placed their faith in you, oh Lord, would you break into their hearts right now. Lord, if they've been scared to approach because of their sin, Lord, would you help them to see the wonderful reality Jesus Christ came for sinners. And Lord, for any of your people here this morning that feel in their hearts and in their lives the weight of trials. Lord, I primarily pray not that you would take the trial away, but that you would transform their view because of the hope we have in the God of the living. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.